Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this beautiful day you've given us. We thank you for our health and for this building you've blessed us with. Um, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ in Mayfield. And we pray that they would learn through this terrible tragedy that your church can be faithful meeting in a cave or in a cathedral. And we pray that you bless the preaching your word this morning. We pray the same in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're going to be in Romans 15, 14 through 21. And I'm going to be talking a lot about the modern, long-term, uh, way modern missions looks at long-term strategy. So I'm not going to talk about short-term mission strategy. Ralph Winter once said that short-term missionaries are like dogs running through a, a museum. They see everything, but they don't understand anything <laughs> they see. So <laughs> Bill and Kelly Housley can teach you a lot about uh, short-term missions. There are some in the modern-day missions movement who would say that theological education is not a part of the missionary task. One of the passages they often cite is Romans 15, 20. I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. When I was a journeyman with the IMB in Thailand, one of the folks in IMB leadership strategy pointed out a seminary some Korean missionaries had built in Bangkok. He said this is a major waste of resources that could be better used funding church planters and missionaries. Where did this idea come from? Speed is a core value of current evangelical church planting strategies. CPM and what Johnny Atkinson from Emmanuel Baptist recently called disciple-making movements, it goes by many different names, redefines the nature of theological education. The nature of training leaders changes from theological and biblical training to training in basic multiplication strategies for the rapid reproduction of churches. T4T is another part of this, which has been widely utilized in the world of evangelical missions, has become a key tool for a new CPM version of theological education by extension. So when you read in some uh, advertising things about what missionaries and mission agency are doing, they'll include theological education and what they're doing. You need to ask, what do they mean by theological education? The goal is not to help ground leaders and their ministries on a solid biblical and theological foundation, but to teach them how to quickly multiply churches. So it's not about how husbands love their wives, but it's about how they share the gospel and nothing else. And they do this quickly. This dichotomy between biblical theological education and church planning shouldn't be. Paul sees them as working hand in hand. There are three points to today's sermon. Boldness in the present, verses 14 through 16. Boasting in regards to the past in 17 through 19. And strategies for the future in 20 through 21. That third point was going to be much longer, but Denny pointed out that 6,500 words is excessive for a 45-minute sermon. So <laughs> we cut that part out a lot. <laughs> thank you, Denny. <laughs> you all thank him after the service. <laughs> I might have been rushing at the end of the sermon. In Romans 15, 14 through 21, Paul's completed his argument about the nature and implications of the gospel and returns to where he began in Romans 1, telling of his desire to visit the church in Rome. 
So he says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. So before visiting Rome, he shares his plans for future ministry endeavors. Romans 15, the Apostle Paul describes his mission strategy for reaching the nations. His strategy included room for both search and harvest theology. That's some, a term that most of you probably haven't heard before. I learned about it in some of my missions classes at Southern Seminary. So it's, it's helpful when we think about something like this. So mission agencies that seek to send missionaries to peoples who have not yet heard the gospel are driven by a search theology. They want to find those peoples who haven't heard. Some agencies not only seek to sow the seed in unreached areas, but also focus on sending missionaries to responsive areas, bringing in the harvest of those who are coming to Christ. So there's a, so we're going to talk about, I'll use these two words every once in a while in this sermon today. Search is where they're searching for unreached people groups, and then harvest theology is where we're going out to places like uh, South America, Africa, and places where we think of as traditional mission fields. So after exhorting the church at Rome in previous verses, Paul encouraged them by showing that they had the marks of a healthy church. They had good doctrine. It says in verse 14 that they are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one, one another. They're filled with doctrine, with practice, full of goodness, and discipline, they able to instruct one another. Thankfully, Kimwood's full of those things as well. I love hearing those kind of conversations during over potluck while people are eating Papa John's pizza. You never know what people are talking about. And it's just really encouraging to hear people instructing one another as they eat pizza together. <laughs> and uh, through his insider contacts, Paul knew the church's strengths and weaknesses. Because he knew of them firsthand, from firsthand sources, he can write emphatically, I myself am convinced or certain that you yourselves are full of goodness and knowledge, etc. The goodness of the congregation is not an inherent goodness. He just means that they're good and that they're able to admonish one another. They are a spiritually mature congregation that has been transformed by the gospel and the power, which is the power of God unto salvation. He's already mentioned their faith has been proclaimed in all the world in Romans 1.8. Their faith has been proclaimed in all the world and they're able to admonish one another. Why did Paul even bother writing to them? Paul didn't write on them because they lacked an apostolic foundation, but he wrote to them to remind them of truths they already knew. This type of reminder was common in Paul's letter and it, letters, and it demonstrates that he was concerned for churches he planted and churches planted by others. Paul had a right to address the Roman church. He was fulfilling his calling as an apostle to the Gentiles by writing a letter to the church at Rome. So in verse 15, he says, But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God. And Paul writes that grace was given to him by God, a standard phrase in some of his writings which describes his calling as an apostle. The basis of his authority to remind the Romans is the fact that he received his commission from God. This gift was by grace, not just God's saving graces, which is often what we think of, but his grace which enables for service. God's grace enabled Paul to accomplish great things in his missionary career from his calling by the time he, and to the time he wrote this letter. According to O'Brien, Paul's missionary career had already spanned 20 years and he concluded his missionary work in the East by this time. Part of his calling was in planting new churches in unreached areas, but it's also building up churches. 
he describes his calling more in verse 16. To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. The purpose for which God called Paul to be an apostle is so that, so that he should be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. This calling to the Gentiles was recognized by the Jerusalem apostles, although their recognition had nothing to do with his authority. As you can see in Galatians 2, 1 through 10. He was directly called by Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus in Acts 9. It began this letter introducing himself as one who had received grace and apostleship. Paul does not refer to himself as an apostle here, but as a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. This could have the meaning of a normal minister, but it usually signified someone who has offered service to God. Paul wrote of his ministry in figures of speech, words that could be found in the Greek version of Leviticus. He depicts himself as a priest, offering the Gentile converts as a sacrifice to God. So he says, in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. He uses this to show that his function is that of a priest presiding over the sacrifices presented to God, and the purpose of his ministry is so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable. So is this offering of the Gentiles he's referring to, is that the offering he's referred to in other parts of this letter? It could be that. Some people think that's what it is. But there's also the offering of the Gentiles themselves. The first option, the second option is preferable because Paul has already written urging the Romans to offer their bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God in Romans 12. Also, he writes this offering being sanctified by the Holy Spirit, which is something he would not say about contributions. So what does this mean, and how does it fit within the argument that Paul advocates both the search and the harvest theologies? Remember, the search is where we're looking for unreached people groups and people who haven't heard. And harvest is we're going out to places where Christ has already been named. Paul is accomplishing his priestly service of the gospel of God by seeking to ensure the acceptability of the offering of the Gentiles. Paul does not use this expression in relation to any ritual, but in relation to the gospel of God. Here, Paul is affirming that the proclamation of the gospel is a solemn and sacred act which originates with God himself. It is literally of God finding its source in God as he proclaims the gospel and it is heard and believed. People are sanctified by the Holy Spirit and become acceptable to God. The Gentiles, who were formerly unclean, are now made clean by the Holy Spirit. And this is accomplished through the preaching of the gospel. John Calvin writes, the gospel is like a sword by which the minister sacrifices men as victims to God. The gospel entrusted to Paul is a means by which he offers this sacrifice. Here Paul is advocating a harvest and a search theology. Harvest theology, he wrote, a letter, he wrote earlier in Romans that he wanted to reap a harvest among them as well. In chapter 1, search and that he desires to go to Rome to take the gospel to those who have never heard. In chapter 15. The emphasis on harvest can also be seen in 15. And he wrote to them to remind the Romans of truths they already knew. Paul is fulfilling his role as an apostle to the Gentiles by writing this letter to the mostly Gentile church at Rome. 
So fulfilling the ministry of the gospel in Christ is boasting in regards to the past, beginning in verse 17. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. The grace of God is a result and a basis for Paul's boasting in the things pertaining to God. God's will for Paul is giving the gospel to the Gentiles, both in the harvest fields and the fields that need to be sown with gospel seed. Paul rightly condemns boasting in your own achievements, but here Paul is referring to boasting in what God has done in him towards the Gentiles in the past. Paul has reason for boasting or exaltation or being proud of his work. All that Paul has done, he has done in the strength of Christ, which means Paul is not boasting in his own achievements, but in what God has been pleased to do through him. What has Christ accomplished through Paul? Paul's God's chosen apostle of the Gentiles has carried out his commission to preach the gospel where Christ has not previously been named and fully completed the gospel of Christ from Jerusalem around as far as Illyricum. The idea that he has reason to boast in Christ is explained verse, further in verse 18. For, in verse 18, indicates that Paul gives reason for his boasting and the means by which his evangelism was effective. Paul took the gospel to the nations and brought about the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. Christ has accomplished his purpose through the apostles' words and deeds. The success of Paul's ministry was made possible by the power of the Holy Spirit. God at work in him. Christ brought about the obedience of the Gentiles through Paul's minute, well, the Holy Spirit, but through words, deeds, signs, and wonders, all fit together in the series. Christ is the active worker in the things of which Paul is speaking. Paul is simply the instrument of God. Paul is proclaiming the gospel of God by the grace of God and the power of the Spirit of God by Christ's enablement. Paul writes, he did this in the power of signs and wonders. What does he mean by signs and wonders? Is it only the things like John Wimber used to teach at Fuller Seminary back years ago? He said, when are we going to get around to the fun stuff in the book of Acts? Is that, is that what he's talking about? Or, yeah, sometimes Google John Wimber, you can find some really strange stuff. But we, we see this often reading through Acts, but Paul does not often use this phrase in his letters. Here, Paul does not confine the Spirit's power to miracles and the things we think of, but he's, often, he's referring to the spiritual effectiveness of his ministry. The power of the Spirit enabled Paul to achieve all he did in words, deeds, signs, and wonders. The signs and wonders attested to the truth of the gospel he proclaimed, and they're one of the means God uses through the apostle to bring about the obedience of the Gentiles. All the examples from the book of Acts are signs and wonders performed at the initial proclamation of the word amongst people who have never heard. Schreiner also says this terminology harkens back to the Exodus story, when God's salvation was accomplished for Israel through signs and wonders. They are signs the new age is dawned. Paul brought the Gentiles to obedience through word and deed from Jerusalem around as far as Illyricum, 
So, is Paul implying that he preached the gospel in Jerusalem and Illyricum, or is he writing in general terms that he preached the gospel in this area? It's likely the language used here reflects prophecies from the Old Testament where the word of the Lord had its inception in Jerusalem, and the Gentiles streamed from there to hear the word, streamed to there to hear the words of God's Torah. Paul uses the phrase all the way around to denote how far he went from Jerusalem. Illyricum was the area north of modern Greece, so he went quite far from Jerusalem. He did not just go straight from Jerusalem to Illyricum, but he went around as far as Illyricum. Paul traveled in a circuitous motion. As you can see in your maps, you stop sometime and you look at your maps. And I remember when I was a younger believer looking at Paul's missionary journeys, I'm like, how is this different from his first and second missionary journeys? They look like he's making the same trip, right? I mean, they're almost like that far apart on your moody maps in the back. So <clears throat> the reason is he traveled the same circuitous route, circuitous route around that area. World maps from the Roman period place the circle of the Mediterranean at the center of the four corners of the world. Within this geographical framework, it is not at all mysterious that Paul would have thought Illyricum was lying in a circle from Jerusalem, and Illyricum was the closest point he had reached on that route to Rome. Along with that point, Triner and Scott believe that Paul assumes the Old Testament idea that Jerusalem is the center of the world. He begins in Jerusalem, circling around the area with Jerusalem at the center. And the language here reflects prophecies in the Old Testament where the word of the Lord has its inception in Jerusalem and the Gentiles stream to hear it. This interpretation is highly likely since Isaiah is quoted frequently in Romans and Paul grounds his missionary strategy in Isaiah's servant song later in the same passage. The result of Paul's ministry to the Gentiles from Jerusalem to Illyricum is that he can say in verse 19, he has fully completed the gospel of Christ. There's two popular interpretations for his phrase that he fully completed the gospel of Christ. Paul's saying that he completed all the expected evangelism in these territories, and Jesus' imminent return only allows for quick, quick preaching of the gospel, which is what a lot of what you'd hear in a lot of mission, modern mission circles. Um, we, we want to promote a quick preaching of the gospel because Jesus is going to come back now. The other interpretation is saying that he has fulfilled his apostolic obligation to begin new evangelistic work in this area. It's most likely the second one since Paul never indicates that he believes Jesus' imminent return only allows for quick preaching of the gospel. The gospel is fulfilled as Paul takes this message to the world and people come to know Christ through the preaching of the gospel and churches are built up through continued contact with Paul and his associates. Paul says he's fulfilled the gospel in these areas, but how can he be ready to travel to the ends of the known world when many have not still heard the gospel in these areas? We know he considers his work as an apostle to the Gentile fulfilled the Gentiles fulfilled in that area because he later writes in verse 23 that he no longer has a place to work in these districts, which means that he has completed the work of preaching the gospel in those areas. Fulfilling the gospel for Paul meant that he completed his apostolic obligation to start new evangelistic work. Churches have been planted in key centers, elders and deacons appointed in those churches, 
And from there, Paul's co-workers would bring the gospel to outlying areas. There's still much work to be done, and he was involved in helping them accomplish this through writing his letters to the churches and helping them sort through their problems and applying the gospel situations as they arose. Paul was a balanced missionary and did not only see his calling as preaching the gospel to those who have not heard, but also strengthening churches that were planted in those regions. Schnabel wrote this two-volume work I had to read at the seminary. I mean, the first one's like this big, and you get to the second one, it's another one. So it, someone needs to go through and edit his stuff to make it a very short. <laughs> There's just so much there. But he's helpful when you can find his helpful parts. He says... Uh, you just had to have someone else read it for you and highlight the parts that you need to read. <laughs> John Polhill, this is a, I'm, I'm, this is the only time I'm going to get off topic. John Polhill taught, it, <laughs> taught New Testament at Southern Seminary for years. He said in one of our seminars that the only way people can write books like that is through the use of computers. He said before you had a computer, you couldn't keep up with all your footnotes and your notes. It's the only reason people write books like that. So... They still need good answers. <laughs> so, Schnabel writes, he repeatedly visited the churches that he had established in Galatia, Macedonia, and Achaia. He stayed for several years in Corinth and in Ephesus. He took time to write letters, to train new workers from whom he sent to the existing churches with various tasks. Paul's main concern evidently was not to reach as many people as possible with the gospel, he spared no effort, time, or energy in safeguarding the consolidation of his missionary successes. So he took time to do both. Paul completed the gospel by traveling to new locations, continuing to visit old locations. This can be seen in maps depicting Paul's missionary journeys. Paul traveled with much of the same ground, his first and second missionary journeys, passing through Galatia and Phrygia. He proceeded directly to the great port of Ephesus. After at least two years of preaching and teaching there, Paul traveled again to Macedonia and Achaia, strengthening the believers and then finished with a trip to Jerusalem. Paul fully completed the gospel in these areas by bringing the Gentiles to full obedience. Verses 14 through 16, Paul writes, the fruits of Christian obedience is showing that what it meant for Paul to complete the gospel. The church at Rome is full of goodness, knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Seeing that the Gentile church has matured to this point is part of Paul's work as apostle to Gentiles. Therefore, verse 17, Paul has reason for boasting in Christ Jesus before God. The result of God accomplishing this through Paul's ministry leads him to boast in what Christ has accomplished through his ministry to the nations. Missionaries who seek to model their lives after the Apostle Paul to seek to reach, well, I'm going to reach back and grab one of Dr. Sills' terminologies, reach and teach instead of merely reaching and leaving, even if the teaching requires others to follow the pioneer preacher. Paul's missionary strategy was to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ in provinces, regions, and towns where no missionary traveled before pursuing a search theology, but not at the expense of the harvest. And Paul's strategies for the future, verses 20 through 21. Thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundations. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Paul completed the gospel in accordance with his ambition to preach where Christ had not yet been named. 
not in the sense that he preached the gospel to every person and planted a church in every village, city, and town. Paul's statement that he makes it his ambition to proclaim not where Christ is already known is an important statement from Paul's missionary strategy in the book of Romans. This statement is read by some as a law for the apostle. Entire mission organizations exist to take the gospel only to those who've never heard. But Paul's ambition should not be read as a law, but as a strong desire or direction in ministry. Paul is not prohibiting where he shall preach, but selecting where he'll make strategic choices to proclaim the gospel. Paul is making his ambition to proclaim not where Christ is already known, with known use in the sense of worship and honor. He wants to take the gospel to places where Christ is not named or acknowledged and or worshipped. As we saw in 1519, he's concerned to complete the gospel. Completing the gospel means that he plants congregations of mature Christians. John Pohill, I'm going to reference him here. He wrote that Paul was often torn between his urgent call to establish new work and his concern for the well-being of congregations he had already founded. Paul is concerned not only with reaching the unreached, but with grounding believers in the truth and helping churches through crises. This grounding happens through revisiting churches, writing letters, and sending others to rebuke and exhort. Paul's purpose of proclaiming not where Christ is already known was to avoid building on someone else's foundation. Does this mean Paul will not do anything to build up existing churches? No. His letter to the church at Rome is proof of that. He did not plant the church at Rome, but he had no hesitation helping the church at Rome. He is saying that his essential calling is to found new churches in places where Christ has not been named among those who have never heard. This idea that Paul only laid foundations and never built on someone else is a contradiction of the apostles' actions throughout his life. Paul repeatedly displays commitment not only to founding, but also upbuilding, not only to begetting, but also rearing, not only to planting, but also nurturing. Paul's ambition and passion is clearly to take the gospel to those who have never heard and plant churches that will reproduce, planting other churches. But Paul was also consistently involved in nurturing churches that he and others had planted. So in 1521, he bases this call on Isaiah 52:15, which matches the Septuagint word for word, as he does in other places in the book of Romans. It's cited as a scriptural ground for the apostles' determination to preach a gospel not in places where Christ has already been known. Paul sees himself fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah. Those who have not been told about him will see. Those who have never heard will understand. In Isaiah, such task was assigned to the servant who will be exalted after suffering and his message will spread out to the nations. Paul recognized that the nation seeing and hearing is fulfilled in his proclamation of the gospel. Those who have never heard will be told will see the same sense and understand his pioneer mission work is the means God is using to fulfill the promises of salvation, deliverance, and a new exodus found in Isaiah. Some places Paul identifies himself with the suffering servant, but here he's taking, talking about taking the message of the suffering servant to the nations. Even if Paul did not identify himself with the servant here or clearly identify Christ as a servant in this passage, he does not see himself as carrying on the work of the servant Yahweh. He is identified with the ministry of the servant, not by taking on the sins of many, but by taking the knowledge of the gospel of the crucified and risen Christ to the nations. He and the other apostles carried out the task of Yahweh's servant. Paul modeled the gospel by living out Christ's sufferings 
displaying the power of God in weakness. Paul's use of the Isaiah passage also focuses on those who have not been told, the needy recipients of this message. This passage underscores God's compassion for the nations, which functions as a ground for Paul's compassion for the nations. God intention, God's intention to take the gospel to the nations and save the Gentiles stretches back from the Old Testament. This grounded Paul's obligation to take the gospel to those who have not been told and bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. Bringing the Gentiles to obedience through word and deed consisted of more than quickly passing through an area and planting churches, or quickly, or even worse, quickly passing through an area, handing out Bibles, telling people to read them, calling it a Bible study in a church, and going on. Paul's strategy was a balance of search and harvest. So in 15, 20 through 21, Paul writes, and he makes it his ambition to proclaim not where Christ is already known. This statement is often used by mission agencies to demonstrate that missionaries should fo not focus on harvest, but focus on search theology, looking for those who have never heard. Ralph Winter writes that there is a great imbalance in global missions. And only 24,000 missionaries sent out of the global evangelical mission force of 253,000 are working within the estimate 8,000 unreached groups, which I imagine that number is higher after what happened in China the last couple of years. Winter goes on to write that we are in range of completing the goal of reaching the last groups who have not heard to be a part of reaching these last groups. Winter began writing about this great imbalance in his declaration to Lausanne in 1974, before many of y'all were born, that mission agencies should shift from a nation-state perspective to a people group perspective. In an attempt to bring balance, evangelicals have spent decades overcorrecting and creating new errors. Many mission agencies have moved missionaries from traditional fields where they were doing theological edu education to places like the 1040 window in an effort to correct this imbalance. And, um, you know, I've not only read about this, but heard about this. I used to be really involved with the Evangelical Missiological Society. It's like the mission side of, it's like, I don't know, they copy their name from ETS. So anyways, used to be involved with them, and there was a lot of older guys that remember when uh, Ralph Winter made this speech, and they studied under people like Donald McGavern at Fuller Seminary and back in the 70s and early 80s, and they saw this happen. And only looking back after serving 40, 50 years in South America and places like that, they saw that their calling was sort of disparaged by peoples. So they, they, you know, like, they were called to serve indigenous peoples in South America or uh, Spanish-speaking peoples in South America. And as time went on after 1974, they saw their calling and their field of harvest and their support for their work disappearing. The mission agencies sold off their schools, sold off their housing, sold off everything, put everything towards the 1040 window. So this overcorrection over, over the last 40, 50 years has resulting in a lot of errors. And Daniel Kim, a Korean missionary in Thailand, wrote, the majority of the leaders vocalized apprehension concerning Thai church's effectiveness in making active and mature disciples after evangelizing people. What's gone wrong in Thailand? I came to a preliminary conclusion that the emphasis on reaching unreached people groups has fortuitously been negating the aspect of discipling in the mission equation. 
So what he's saying, he goes on in this longer <coughs> article about this, mission agencies have gone from taking theological education as grounding people and learning how to read the word, teach the word, love, teach men to love their wives, and then learn what eldership looks like, uh, good church government looks like, what a, what a church is, to just teaching people, here's, your, here's our new way we've come up with sharing the gospel, make five disciples in the next five months, move on, teach them to make five disciples in the next five months, and we've planted a church. But these people don't know how to read the Bible. They might not even know how to read. They don't know how to love their wives. They don't know how to perform basic parts of the Christian life. So this modern imbalance of perceiving theological education is a distraction from the main as a main a distraction from the main task of reaching the unreached can be corrected by looking to Paul's life and ministry. When Paul writes, he makes it his ambition to proclaim not where Christ has already been known. He's not stating a law, but a strong desire or direction in ministry. He is concerned with completing the gospel, meaning that he's concerned with planting congregations of mature Christians. Paul was concerned not only reaching the unreached, but also grounding believers in the truth and helping churches through crises. Paul revisited churches, wrote letters, and sent others to rebuke and exhort. Paul intended to carry out the task of Yahweh's servant by taking the knowledge of the gospel of the crucified and risen Christ to the nations by following a theology of search and harvest. So what is this gospel Paul was so concerned with taking to the nations? It's the good news of Jesus Christ, the righteous one who died for our sins and rose again, eternally triumphant over all his enemies, so that now there is now no condemnation for those who believe, but only everlasting joy. And there's people here who don't believe that. And therefore, they can only expect condemnation. So I'm going to go ahead and plead with you here at the end. Lay down your rebellion and simply embrace the gospel of Christ who died for the sins of many. He was raised on the third day, triumphant over all his enemies. He reigns until he puts all his enemies under his feet. Forgiveness of sins and right standing with God Come freely through him alone by faith alone. Don't try to do this on your own strength and try to get through life with your own strength and understanding. It will not be there when you need it, as many people in this church can testify to. Only one strength will be there, the strength that God gives according to the gospel. And don't put it off. And like Jim says and Denny says and others every week when you come to church here, you can find an elder, find a deacon, or talk to the person next to you. They will know the gospel, and they'll be able to tell it to you. If you don't know, come to one of us. Talk to the person next to you. They'll be happy to share the gospel with you. And please stay with us after church for Potluck Fellowship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word, which teaches us how to live our lives in a way that is pleasing to you. And we pray that we would be faithful. Um, sons and daughters of you. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.